you may remember that I told you of this. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. Okay. Now, Jesus is telling them about this opposition so that they would be kept from stumbling. Um, I mean, I think that it's important for Jesus to warn them about what's coming. Sometimes if, if we face a lot of opposition in our service to God, it can almost make it feel like it, this can't possibly be right. It can't possibly be from God because it's being attacked so much. Well, Jesus is telling us up front, that's the way it's going to be so that we're not shaken in our faith when the persecution comes. After all, the biggest danger we face is not persecution. It's apostasy. It's falling away from God. You know, if we're persecuted, they kill us. Well, what do they kill? The body. But not affect the soul. So, he's really worried that the persecution not damage their faith. He says, they'll make you outcasts from the synagogue. They will think that they're offering a sacrifice to God when they kill you. You remember somebody who thought that? Paul. Yeah, Saul, Paul. He, when he was persecuting the Christians, he actually thought that's what God wanted him to do. He thought God was pleased with him. Which, you know, from our perspective is pretty like, wow, how could they do it? But but that's exactly what they think sometimes. And in a sense, they are offering up a sacrifice to God when they kill the Christians. If you think about it, that's kind of ironic. But in fact, the Christians giving themselves to God uh, is, is, is in a sense a sacrifice to him. He says, you know, I've spoken these things to you in verse 4. So that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. See, <laughs> If, if, um, if I were to tell you, you know, now, when you go home, this, this, and this are going to happen. And as soon as you get home, <coughs> those things happen. What are you going to think? It's going to increase your trust in me as a prophet or, you know, as really wise or something. Because I can't do that, so don't expect that. But Jesus could. And by Jesus telling them in advance what would happen, when it happened, instead of shaking their faith, it would actually strengthen their faith. Because they'd come to see that Jesus knew, and he could tell them exactly what was going to take place. And he says, I didn't say these things to you at the beginning because I was with you. Now, when he says that, I didn't say these things to you at the beginning because I was with you. What does he mean? Why wouldn't he have said those things to him at the beginning because he was with them. Wasn't necessary. Because at this point is the appropriate time because he's going to be leaving them soon. So, therefore? They're, they're going to need these things, whereas they wouldn't have needed them before because Jesus was with them. So he could have comforted, encouraged, and all directly, but now they need to rely on what he's saying. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yes, that's one point. I think there may be even another point. I think that's maybe the main point. But why would he now need to say him because he's not going to be with them any longer? If anybody knows this, think about Revelation 12. Because they were perhaps ready to understand that they're going to be persecuted. 
Yeah, I'm not sure they still are. <laughs> what happens as Jesus leaves? David? Um, the persecution can be a whole lot worse. Yes, and that's part of it, but what's also going to happen with the persecution? Think about it. Jesus leaves. What happens with the persecution? It's focused on them. It's focused on Jesus. You know, Jesus kind of, while he was there, was sort of a lightning rod. You know, the persecution fell more on him than it did on the disciples. Once he leaves, who does the dragon turn his attention to? Persecuting the woman from Revelation 12, which means God's people, after the man-child was caught up to heaven. So it seems to me like when he leaves, the focal point of the persecution is going to be more on them. So this is going to be even harder for them. Does Jesus ever tell people, hey, you follow me, it's going to be easy. It'll be a breeze. Don't, don't sweat. <laughs> he never did, did he? He always said it's going to be tough. I've said this before, but when I was growing up, like in my fourth and fifth year <clears throat> Bible class at church, I had this well-meaning teacher. He's long since passed away. But uh, he, he always told us, he said, you know, you, one of these days you're going to think about becoming a Christian. And, and I don't, don't think that it's going to be hard. It's really not that hard. You don't have to change that much. It's not a big deal. You can do it. It'll be easy. Well, I think he was trying to encourage us to do it. But really, that wasn't true. Uh, it, it's not like we ought to think, oh, this will be a breeze. It's not going to be any big deal. Yes, it is. It is challenging to be a Christian. And, and Jesus never pulled the wool over their eyes and tried to make them think it would be easier than what it was. He let them know. And that, you know, really shows you his honesty. We ought to do the same thing. When we're teaching people the gospel, don't leave them with the impression that there's not going to be any challenges. It's not going to be hard. <laughs> it will be. It's worth it, but it's hard. All right, comments or questions through verse 4. Micah. In verses 2 and 3, whenever it's talking about how people will persecute them thinking that they are doing the will of the Lord, other than the first century, do you really see that happening to uh, God's followers of them being persecuted by people thinking that they're doing the Lord's will? Yeah. I mean, certainly you have that a lot of places today. I mean, the radical Muslims, you know, they think they're doing the will of Allah. And even some of the ridicule and things like that we may get from people who are in false religions who are trying to belittle, and, and they think that God's placed with them. So I think there's at least some of that all wrong. And kind of like that, you know, we can get that in our own churches. Um, we're trying to stand up for what's right, or maybe... It can happen. Yeah. Yeah. Other thoughts to the four? Five to fifteen? But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asked uh, and none of you asked you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he 
when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they did they do not believe in me. And concerning the and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because of the ruler of his of uh, this world ha- has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of Truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify, glorify me, for he will take of mine and will de- disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will not disclose it to you. So... There's something in this attitude they have toward his departure. Now we look at it in 1428. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. Now he says in 16.5, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, I want you to think about their attitude when Jesus said, I'm leaving. How did they feel? Really sad. How come? You're right, but what was the surface reason why they were sad? Abandoned. Yeah, they didn't want him to leave. They loved him. They wanted him to be there, and it just was very emotional. It was unsettling. You know, they were thinking about who when they heard Jesus say he was leaving. Themselves. I used the illustration uh, the other day in class when we lived in Brazil for three years. And, and, you know, over the last few months, we were making preparations to move back to the U.S. Most of the brethren were really upset. <coughs> and, and, and some of them were even like, you know, basically they didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to think about it. They didn't want to hear about it. And I understood that. You know, that I could understand how they felt. And, and sort of betrayed and just sad because they didn't want us to leave. There were a few more mature brethren who would, who would say and demonstrate, you know, this is sad for us, but we're so happy for you guys. Because you're going back to your home, to your families, to brethren that you know. It'll be an encouragement to you. And even sometimes we want to talk about it from the standpoint of what it would mean to us. It's really mature on their part. But you can see the difference. You know, for, for the disciples, instead of thinking about Jesus in this, they were thinking about themselves. All they could think of when Jesus said, I'm going away, is, oh, you're leaving us! He says, you're not even asking me where am I going, like as if you care about what's going to happen with me. All you're focused on is yourself. Is it easy for us to just be focused on ourselves? I really think that's a big problem. Can I extend on that for a moment before we uh, come back to this? Um, Just, you know, I'm going to just make a side point 
that I've thought about, I've, I've just, you know, I've even preached on this just a little bit. I don't know that I can do this real well, but I'll just take a second and you think about this. I think a lot of times when we think of Christianity, we focus too much on ourselves, on our own blessings, on our own lives, on our own experiences. You know, you see that a lot. You see worship. And you see worship that's, you know, we're focused on what we like and what's fulfilling and meaningful to us instead of what's going to honor God. You see evangelism. And evangelism is thought of and done almost exclusively in terms of what's in it for the convert instead of for God's honor and glory. You know, we're just thinking, well, that'll, that'll help him. And, uh, you know, a lot of times the focus is a lot on our experiences and what we're going through and what we're feeling. And not very focused on the Lord, His will, His glory, His love. That, that you know, it, a lot of times... You know, the Christianity that we've sort of developed, there's little focus on Jesus other than he's the guy that pays the bills. You know, but, but we don't think about what he wants, what he feels. We don't think about he, what he's going through. It's so focused on ourselves. Do you see that? To me, that's where they were at. They, you know, Jesus said, I'm leaving. They think, oh, that's bad. We'll miss him. They don't think, well, where's he going and how's this going to be for him? For Jesus, going away meant what? Going home. Going back to his father. If they had loved Jesus, how would they have felt? Be happy for him. Do you ever think about how Jesus feels? How God feels? Or do we just think <coughs> of our selfish terms? I'll pause a moment before we go on. Any thoughts or comments on that? Mm -hmm. In 27. Oh, go ahead, Chuck. Sorry. Um, in 27 to 14, does that peace come when he's on the cross? Or would that come later on? Like, well, if it hadn't been for the cross, they wouldn't have had the peace. But I think they get the peace as they turn to the Lord. Other comments, thoughts on these ideas? Well, the point Jesus makes more here in 16 is that when he goes away, what does that do? It allows the helper to come. And he sees that as being a big advantage for them. He says, really, if I don't go away, it'd be worse. Because I go away, and that way I can send the Holy Spirit. And, well, why is that important? Isn't that an interesting thing to ask? You know, like, okay, so he goes away and sends the Holy Spirit. Is that better? I mean, why, why would that be better than him just staying here? He seems to think it's better. Maybe they would start... It would be kind of like, you know, like a parent and child kind of relationship kind of thing where the parent is with them for a while, helping them and training them, but then they kind of, I guess they, they still rely on Jesus, but maybe they're kind of... To do more on their own? Yeah. Maybe so. That? Jesus is manifested in one body, but the Spirit 
he's all throughout the, the the university. He's all he's able to touch more than this one person. <coughs> he's not he's not Captain you know this you know Indiana or Illinois or whatever. That's an interesting thought, Logan. Well, first of all, they c it was better for them if Jesus goes because if Jesus doesn't go, then he can't die for their sins. And so they'll still won't be right with God, and the Spirit will give them direct revelation and understanding. So Jesus have to explain things to them where they might not understand. Okay, it's kind of a tricky thing to think through, I think, and I don't know if I've got a full handle on this or not either. Um, in the Old Testament prophets, they talked a lot about how the coming age of the Messiah and his kingdom would be characterized by the Spirit being poured out. That seems to be a big signal of the work of God progressing to the next step. That that was a blessing, that there would be a real big blessing, the Spirit being poured out on all flesh. And, and, and so you see in the Old Testament, that seems to have been really a milestone. And then, what would you think about this? Do you see any difference in the disciples before and after the Holy Spirit was poured out on them? Yeah. What do you see? <coughs> uh, they're more bold. Yeah. They speak the word of God. They, they know more. Uh, they understand better. Uh, the, the teachings of Jesus, they're just totally different people. So did it help when Jesus left and sent the Holy Spirit? I think you see in their lives that that was an advance in the mission as far as it uh, related to them as the Holy Spirit came on them, gave them boldness, gave them understanding, matured them. I think Jesus is saying this is really the best thing for you guys that we continue the work I leave and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Comments and thoughts to that point? Now he talks some here about the role of the Holy Spirit with them. What did he say the Holy Spirit's going to do when he comes? Guide you the truth. That, that's later, just a little bit later, still same passage, but what does he say first? Convict. Convict who? Of? Sit. Exactly, and then he spells each of those out. There's a lot of things the Holy Spirit came to do. Don't think that he only had, you know, a one-track mind. But one of the things he came to do was to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. wonder how he does that. Does the world receive the Holy Spirit in their lives? <coughs> you know, we think sometimes about the Holy Spirit coming into a person's life, into a person's heart. But can, can, a, can a person in the world receive the Holy Spirit like that? No. Uh, in fact, back in chapter 14, Jesus uh, has specifically talked about that. And Judas in 22 says, why, why aren't you, know, you coming to the, disclosing yourself to the world? Because he emphasized he'll, he'll be in the Christian, not in the world. So, I don't think so. So how does the Holy Spirit convict the world? The apostles. I think so. I think by inspiring the apostles, their message, their testimony would convict the world about the very things the world needed to be convicted about. What did the world need? 
So I need to be convicted about sin. And the thing that shows their sin more than anything is they don't believe in Jesus. Jesus is the um, most important thing to decide about. They don't believe in Jesus. They are sinners. And they've got to be convicted of sin before they ever be saved. You can't, you can't help them until they realize their sin. Then he's going to convict them concerning righteousness. And, and they had false standards of righteousness. They didn't understand righteousness. In fact, they thought Jesus was unrighteous. But Jesus went to the Father and God vindicated him. And then concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world has been judged. You see that God is destroying Satan and his side and the cause of Christ is prevailing. So through what the apostles taught, the world would come to have conviction about those key things. What a blessing Jesus left and sent the Spirit to do that. Comments and questions through 11. In 12 and 13, that's where Jesus would, through the Spirit, guide them into all the truth. Now, what does he say in verse 12? Much more that they need to know that they can't bear it. Yeah, they weren't ready to hear everything yet that Jesus had to tell them. So he was going to send the Holy Spirit who would be able to complete the revelation when they were more ready to receive it. Um, you know, Jesus taught a lot of stuff, but the revelation had to occur kind of a step at a time as they could absorb it. And so the Spirit would fill that picture out. Now, did you, do you notice the emphasis in verse 13? What does he emphasize about the Spirit? The right, Spirit truth. As God is the God of truth, Jesus is the Jesus of truth. Where is the Spirit of truth? He's always going to say what's right. What else? Logan? Just like Jesus said that he doesn't speak out of his own issue, but from what the Father wants, the Spirit does the same. Absolutely. The Spirit does not act independently for his own agenda. He glorifies the Son and, 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 and acts according to the Father and the Son's direction. It's just exactly like Jesus. You look back at uh, 8.28... Jesus said, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I do what the Father says. In 1249, Jesus says, I do not speak on my own initiative, but I speak what the Father told me to say. In 1410, uh, he says, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding me in me does his works. So, Jesus always submitted to the Father and never acted independently on his own. And in the same way, the Spirit doesn't act independently on his own, but he fulfills the mission of Jesus, which is exactly where we're supposed to be. We're not supposed to act independently on our, on our own. We're supposed to submit to the Lord and fulfill his purpose. Jesus and the Spirit are really showing us the pattern of submissive trust in fulfilling the mission of another. And so the Spirit's mission was to glorify Christ. Look at 14 and 15. The Spirit would take 
the words of Christ and pass them on. The Spirit was almost like the alter ego of Jesus. He was going to continue his work and fulfill Jesus' mission here. Don't think about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit ever as being at cross-purposes. Their work is always 100% harmonious, and they work together for one single goal. Comments and questions? I would think 1613 is not a promise specifically applicable to us. At least not in its first application. The Spirit guided the apostles into all the truth by being in them, inspiring them to reveal this message. In one sense, the Spirit guides us into all the truth, but he does it through the message he revealed through them. So our being guided into all the truth is kind of the product of the Spirit guiding the apostles into all the truth. <coughs> Logan. Well, in what ways does the Holy Spirit work in our lives today? Uh, yeah, well, you want to have a uh, whole week's meeting on that? Well, I, do you have any references as far as the Holy Spirit working in our lives today or anything like that? Well, there's a lot that the Bible says about the Holy Spirit in us and things the Holy Spirit does for us. Uh, Romans 8 is a good passage, perhaps. Uh, but don't think about the Holy Spirit doing that like on his own. He works in us and lives in us in the same way that the Father and the Son do. Not as some sort of a special, different kind of a thing. I have a question about, I guess you'd mentioned like he inspired the apostles or whatever. Um, how do we, I don't know, like biblically, how would we establish what's the criteria for determining like what would be inspired works? Like, because you know, Hebrews, we don't know who wrote that, and yet we can say that inspired. And I'm, I'm not sure how we determine these things. Um, Excellent question. Um... I'd, I don't know that I have all the answers about that, but we know the apostles themselves were inspired by passages like this, and clearly what they say by the inspiration of the Spirit is authoritative and is a revelation of God. But not just the apostles. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, you have the same thing said about the prophets. Um, in verse 5 of Ephesians 3, which in other generations is not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And back in Ephesians 2.20, we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. And so there were prophets also that were inspired by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God. You've got the same thing in 2 Peter 3, 2, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. And you've got the same thing uh, in Jude, although I may forget where, 17, I think. Uh, that may just be the apostles, though. But So you've got the apostles and the prophets being the foundation of the church and being revealing the message through the Holy Spirit. So... If it was a revelation of an apostle or prophet, then it was from God. And you see the early Christians, the criteria they had primarily for accepting or rejecting 
a written document as being from God or not is whether or not an apostle or prophet wrote it. The question of Hebrews is more complicated in that we're not sure who wrote it. Uh, we, we assume it was an apostle or prophet, even though we don't know which one, even by its content. Would you say it has to be an apostle or prophet? Because I thought maybe that it's possible that it could be inspired um, without having that. I mean, I don't know, but maybe I'm wrong on that. Well, I think that's almost a definition thing. A prophet is someone who reveals God's word by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If somebody didn't have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and say just had good insight and wrote a good document based upon what had been revealed, you wouldn't consider that to be a revelation. You consider that to be a teaching or a commentary or something like that, but you test it by the word that actually has been revealed by God by apostles and prophets. So almost by definition, a prophet is the person who has the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So, so what would we say about, like, I guess, like, like Luke or Acts? I guess there's a connection with the apostles. I would say that Luke was a prophet. Okay. That's what I would say. I don't think just being connected with the apostles itself is adequate. It could be somebody connected with the apostles who didn't accurately reveal what the apostles said. But when you have this emphasis on the apostles and prophets, I think we should not just see the revealing work being done to the apostles. Clearly, even Paul says, and Peter, the revealing work is also done by prophets who had the Holy Spirit. One, in practical terms, in my judgment, in practical terms, it is very helpful to read the competition for inclusion in the Bible. You know, if you read the ten books that were the most, that people considered the most likely that should have should have been in the Bible that weren't, that'll be enough to convince you that the proper books are the ones that we have and the others are not. There's just such a huge difference in quality. Very notable to anybody who reads Good question. Maybe not a great answer, but other comments and questions? All right, well, let's uh, plow forward. Uh, 16 to uh, 24. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that we wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she had delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. 
truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So, what does Jesus tell them? <coughs> in a little while, uh, they won't see him, but then they'll see him. Yeah! And what do they think? Yeah, what? What does he mean? A little while and we won't see him and a little while and we will see him and because I go to the Father. So what's this little while he's talking about? Um, we have the same question. What does he mean, a little while? Well, what does he mean, a little while you won't see me? His death. So what is the a little while and you will see me? That's one. And maybe that's the point. Is there another possibility? When he returns to honor. That'd be another. That doesn't seem real little wildish, though. <laughs> but, that, you know, that may still be. What's another possibility? When the Spirit comes. When the Spirit comes. <laughs> um, so you got some different things. Perhaps the simplest explanation is his resurrection. But I'm not sure if that is what he's talking about or not. So I had the same questions they did. Um, and I'm not sure what Jesus said nails it down for me as to which he's talking about. But what he does say helps us to understand whatever, whether we're talking about his resurrection appearances or his coming through the Holy Spirit. He says, you will lament, weep and lament in 20, but... But and the world will rejoice, and then you, and you will grieve. But your grief will be turned into joy. It's like a woman in labor that she goes through all this grief when she's in labor. But then she gives birth to the child, and she's happy. So Jesus' departure was really going to distress them, but that would turn into their joy, both in the resurrection appearances and in the coming of the Holy Spirit. You know, because what you know, this thing that was so painful. I mean, can you you know have you thought about how the disciples felt when Jesus got arrested? nailed onto the cross. Do you remember those two that were on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24? And, and Jesus, I don't know, they didn't recognize him. I'm not sure how to, all that is, but they didn't recognize him. He started, you know, this is the day he was right. He started walking with them, and, and they thought he was just kind of a stranger, and, and they're talking. He's like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, well, you, you, you don't know? You haven't heard? And they tell him about, oh, Jesus, you know, all this, and we were hoping he was the one that was going to redeem Israel, and, they crucified him and, and this and that. And they heard some reports that his tomb's empty, but you know, they're just so you can see how it shattered their hopes, it shattered their dreams. This was just I mean, can can you imagine the twelve, the eleven? <laughs> you know, he's gone. We thought. We oh, and wow. And so you can imagine how distressed they were. Can you imagine three days later? Can you imagine how they had many costs? Can you see how the grief they experienced was transformed into great joy. You know, how many times is it like that for us? How many times are the most painful experiences the ones that become the most joyous? It's weird how the Lord brings joy out of sorrow. So he's going to do that there for them. And he says, look at 24 and 25, 23 and 24. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. 
Ask and you will receive so that your joy will be made full. The death of Jesus revolutionized their whole situation where now they could ask the Father on the basis of what Jesus did. You know, if Jesus has never died, what would our relationship be to God? Because? We are separated from him. By? Sin. Exactly. Jesus' sacrifice took away the barrier, reconciles us to God, and now we can turn to him, be close to him, and he will respond to us. We can approach God directly, and if we ask in Jesus' name, that is, if we ask according to Jesus' will, according to his purposes, in accordance with his mission, he, God will answer our prayers because Jesus' work has brought us close to God. Roger. But that's assuming that in that day means his death and resurrection, right? Or means the day of Pentecost, either one. Either way, it's the same difference. But I think so. I don't think in that day means when he comes back at the end of time. Because clearly here he's talking about something that's going to happen on the earth. I have a random question. Um, I have a random answer. Okay. <laughs> um, how long was it from when Judas left them to like the garden? Less than a day. Oh yeah, a lot less than a day. It was so that same night. Do you think that the other disciples would have wondered? I mean, even after Jesus said the one who I did bread with and who I gave it to or whatever, that they might have wondered since Jesus was gone. Well, yeah, and it says that when you remember when Jesus sent him away, Jesus said, you know, what do you do? Do quickly. And he left, and they're thinking, like, maybe he went to give some stuff yeah. to the poor. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. And then when he gets out to the garden, this is just hours, not very many hours, then Judas shows up with the arrest party. And that's kind of a shock. We'll see that. In fact, in John 18, it's kind of awkward the way John says it. And it's just kind of it's hanging up. And Judas was there. And, and, and it's kind of like, you kind of see how stunned he was when he puts two and two together. And Judas is there with them. That, that was really, whoa, that was something. Other thoughts? I, just, um, well this, I don't know, verse 23 and 24, if we say like in that day is when the Holy Spirit uh, came upon them, will that connect us with Roman A and how close of a relationship our prayers have to, uh, how the Holy Spirit works in our prayers in ways we don't, we just don't know? I don't think that's what this is talking about. Oh. Alright, how about 25 to 33? This is going to kind of continue the same thought. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father, and have come into the world. And I am leaving the world again, and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came forth, that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. 
And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Okay. So in 26, in that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I, to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Do you see, in these verses 23 to 27, do you see the change that's taking place by what Jesus does? What's happening? Our relationship with God is being changed from distance to closeness. Yes! How? The barrier of sin is removed. Yes! So what does that mean now about our relationship with God, Travis? Go ahead. Uh, so instead of Jesus being here teaching us on the Father and showing us the way, once he's created this, this bridge to the Father, as he says, the old law passes and the new law comes into effect. It makes it to where we ourselves, through our sacrifice, through his sacrifice, we are able to serve God. Yes, but through his sacrifice. I mean, what kind of relationship do we have with God now? What can we do? We can talk to him directly. We can talk to him directly. Is that pretty cool? Do we think that? Well, I act like it sometimes. But because? Because we don't pray. If, if we value it and we think it's special, then we take advantage of it more often. Well, you're exactly right. That is... You know, that's a blessing that maybe we almost pass over and we don't really appreciate. The opportunity to talk to God and to have the barrier of sin removed so we can just come directly to Him. That's an amazing blessing. I mean, anybody else listening to this would think, that's awesome, that's incredible. We may take it for granted. So how is it when we pray? What happens? Your prayer leaves your lips. Where does it go? To the Father. Yes. Do you see that? Does Jesus have to take it over there himself? No. Now, did Jesus have a role in this? Yeah. If that meant for what Jesus did, we couldn't talk directly to the Father because we'd have the barrier. We'd have the sin that destroyed the relationship. Through what Jesus did, now we have a direct relationship with God. That's what we say. I used to have the concept that all of my prayers went through Jesus' office, and then he carried them over to God. That's not the way it is. We talk directly to God on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice. Questions and comments about that? Uh, the other day you said that uh, you made a reference to something I never thought of before, praying to Jesus. What are some of those references that you talk about there? I forgot to ask about it earlier. Okay, that's good. Um, 
First Timothy one twelve. Um, you've got I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who strengthened me and has considered me faithful, putting me into service. In Revelation five, there were there was praise in heaven offered to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In Acts chapter seven, Stephen says, "Lord Jesus, receive my spirit." In John 14, I think is where we were, um, in, in John 14, 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. There's a textual question on that, but in the New American Standard, that's what you've got. Um, you've got like, in Acts 1, 24 and 2 Corinthians 12, you've got the Lord used as the sort of what the request is directed toward, but both in Acts 1 and 2 Corinthians 12, the Lord there seems to be Jesus. Um, and John 5.23 says that we should all honor the Son, even as we honor the Father. Now, the norm doesn't seem to be Jesus specifically as the recipient of the prayers. I don't think that's the more common thing. The more common thing is we pray to God. I suspect often when you see prayers in the Bible directed to God, it's not so distinguished between Father, Son, and Spirit, praying to God as a whole. But we do have biblical authority for addressing Jesus specifically. Certainly we have biblical authority for addressing, addressing the Father specifically. But many times, I suspect, we're dealing with prayers to God. You also have, uh, what is it, uh, Somewhere, somebody just asked me this. Was it you, Logan? In Second Thessalonians one, is that where it was? Somewhere. Uh, well, Second Thessalonians two sixteen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God the Father comfort and strengthen your hearts. I think there's another one or two of those in First or Second Thessalonians where you've got God and Jesus together. Um, I think First so, Thessalonians three eleven. Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. So, you've got several passages that, in some way or other, encompass Jesus in that. Chuck? I don't know if you can take um, Revelation 8, 3, um, talks about uh, the, the incense, or the presence of the saints coming up, or an instance before the, before the one on the throne. Would that be God sitting on the throne, or Christ on the throne in that scene? Probably God. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, is, can, can we pray to We know you're sorry. <laughs> The Holy Spirit. I mean, do we see authority for addressing God the Father and Jesus? Is there any examples of Holy Spirit prayers? What I said the other day is, I know of no example of addressing the Holy Spirit specifically in prayer. Other comments or answers on all these questions? Chris? We may get the idea a little bit that this is always appears in our mind that God the Father is, is dead. The head God is the, is the main God, and the others are lesser gods. And I think we get that idea even from 1613 and from Jesus all through this that He does the will of the Father. So we almost see Him as being in subjection to God the Father, or as an understudy to to that. Those are kind of hard things to figure, sort out, aren't they? Because there's one way in which Jesus has been very specific that he always does submit to his Father and he doesn't do anything on his own. And so you see a submissive role for Jesus. And sometimes when we think submission, we think like lower nature. 
and inferiority. <coughs> but I don't think that's the point. In fact, it might not make a very good point that he submitted if he was of a lower nature. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're really not the same type of being, then submission may be mandatory and not voluntary and not be so praiseworthy. The fact that Jesus was equal with the Father makes it more newsworthy that he humbly submits to the Father's plan and purpose. When somebody, you know, you may submit to your younger brother or sister because you love them and you want to serve them. Does that mean they are superior to you? No. It means you've chosen to submit yourself to them. Submission does not necessarily mean inferior nature. It looks to me like the best I can figure out what the Bible says is that God is of one nature because there's one God. There's not different ranks but there is functional differences in the roles and in the roles the Bible presents the father's more or less the architect and the son executes and the spirit reveals that's what I see but now do you understand that whenever I say anything about the nature of God anything I say is probably inadequate I mean all, all that I can do is try to sort of try to reiterate what I see in the Bible and try to put it into a model that's consistent with biblical teaching. But we ought to be very careful that we don't exalt our model. We ought to be sure that we're just, you know, we're willing to accept whatever the Bible says. And what will probably happen, you know, what probably is happening is that even if we're consistent with biblical evidence, there's so much more we don't understand that our models may be skewed here or there. So I, I'm, I'm reluctant to say very much about the nature of the Godhead because I think there's so much it's not even revealed and a lot of what is revealed that I don't understand. Comments? We're just way over our heads when we start talking about these topics. 28 is a brief summary of the Gospel, isn't it? Then that, then that pretty well sum it up, kind of like that uh, brief section. The disciples say, now you're speaking plainly. Now we understand. Now we don't have to question you anymore uh, because now we, we know. And Jesus is like, do you now believe? <laughs> you know, the disciples are easily overconfident. They easily think they know more than what they do, and they easily feel too secure in that. Sometimes we do. Do you ever get your word? Yeah, now I understand. Now I'm ready. Now I got it. Well, maybe we do, and maybe we really don't. In this case, I suspect they need a little bit more. He says, an hour is coming, and it's already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone, and yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. So, you know, they're not going to stick with him. So they don't necessarily understand quite as well as you would think. And what would it be like for Jesus when they all abandoned him? See how hard that was? You ever felt alone? You ever felt like, man, nobody cares? What would Jesus have felt like? We sang, one of the songs we sang last night had a line in there about that I was noticing. Uh, I think it was, uh, 
he could have called 10,000 angels. I think there was a line talking about how he was alone. Comments and questions through 32. What thoughts do you have on all that? In 33, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I've overcome the world. So you have the contrast between what we have in him and what we have in the world. In, the world, in him we have peace. In the world we have tribulation. Even though we have tribulation in the world, we can still have peace by being in him. The peace that we have in him over, overrides the tribulation we have in the world. But Jesus is trying to prepare them. You know, you think about Jesus in this. Jesus is hours away from the trauma of the cross. And what's he been talking about this whole time? Stuff for them. When he thinks about leaving, who does he think about? It's going to be really hard for me. Man, this is going to be bad. Man, I, no, he thinks about this is what they need. These are things that will help them. Isn't that amazing? Would you ever be going through something like this and be that focused on them? Comments? Yeah. Just a question in 33 here. I have overcome the world. Um, I guess you'd expect to hear this perhaps after he was resurrected. Um, can you explain about that? Did that have the application to us? Did he overcome the world before? And with that, can you throw in verse 11, 16, and how Satan's already condemned, or the prince of the world is already condemned? I'm glad you threw that in. I think Jesus is assuming the crucifixion. This is, he, he already decided. Gethsemane's already over. He's already embraced it. It's almost like it's happened. He's going ahead and assuming that it's happened. Um, look at, for example, at 17.4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. But he hadn't. He hadn't been crucified yet. But he's assuming that. This is sort of like, this is his final speech embracing and encompassing what he's already planned and purposed to do, and it's as good as done. All Maybe slightly like the prophetic perfects of the Old Testament, where God would say, a father of many nations, I, I have made you. Abraham had no children, let alone many nations. But since God had determined it, it was as good as having happened. So when Jesus has determined it, it's like he's already assuming it's happened. That's what I think. It's a very good question. David. So this thing has already happened at this point? Yes. The, uh, this is Jesus instructing the disciples after that, before. Yes. 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 I think Jesus... Well, I said that. Am I wrong? Yeah. I'm wrong. <laughs> I guess I'm wrong. Yeah, you're right. Sorry about that. Yeah. We don't see him in Gethsemane and John. But yeah, you're right. So I'm wrong about that. But still, he has still purpose to do this. And so he's still including it as having, you know, occurred. Yeah, good point. Thank you. Is there an intentional connection between 1633 and 1-5 where it says the light shine in darkness and the darkness did not overcome it? Uh, maybe in some senses. It didn't overcome it. He overcame the world. Then, 
in this passage, we, we see a lot about this idea of love, that you will have love, or not, not love, sorry, joy, that you will have joy. But in, in this last verse here, it says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. It, it seems like to me that joy should be fit in there. Is there is a reason why it says peace? Well, maybe peace fits with the tribulation. You know, there's, there's peace and calmness even in the tribulation because they're with the Lord. Maybe that's a good contrast. Other comments and questions? I'll tell you what I'm going to do right here. I'm going to do a couple of things um, about chapter 17 without really starting 17. I don't think we want to really start 17 and then have to pick it up with a whole different group. 